You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, in 2011, January of 2011, one of the most formative times in my spiritual walk occurred. Uh, I remember distinctly the evening that it began. Uh, We went over to Robert and Monica's house uh, just to hang out and have some coffee. This was when I was young enough to still have coffee at night and go to sleep, so a long time ago. Uh, To have some coffee, to eat some good food, and just to enjoy their company. We were probably eight months into uh, the Source Church that Robert and Monica planted in the western suburbs of Chicago, and the Lord had just been kind to uh, really start to grow a friendship and a mentorship uh, between Robert and Monica and Rachel and I. And we were sitting there in that January, and it was cold, which is a feeling foreign to me now that I live in Georgetown. But I can almost remember it. And we were over there, and we were talking about an adoption process that Robert and Monica had just entered into. Uh, They were going through the process, the beginning of a process, to adopt uh, these beautiful, amazing kiddos from the country of Ghana in West Africa. And we were over there, and they were showing us pictures, and we were talking through the process, and they were ooing and aahing, and we were celebrating the goodness of God. We were praying for these children. All all the while, what I didn't know is that my wife, uh, behind my back, was praying that somehow the Lord would convince me that we also were meant to go through this adoption process. Uh, We had two kids at that time. We had Noah, who was two, and we had Henry, who was six months. And I was, uh, let's see, two kids overwhelmed at that point. And, and yet we were sitting here and we were having this conversation and, and I just felt the Lord stirring and working. And, and as we were going through these pictures, there was this one little girl at the orphanage that just was in or near or around all of these pictures. And we went home and I told Rachel, hey, I'm going to say something crazy. I think maybe we should adopt. And her response, I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it sounded something like it's about dang time or something like that. I don't know. Or maybe it was, thank you, Lord, that you've softened the hardness of my husband's heart. Uh, And from that moment on, we began the process of adopting a five-year-old little girl. Uh, Just uh, about two or three months later, Robert and I boarded a plane, uh, and we took a flight from Chicago to D.C. and from D.C. to uh, Ghana, and then after... uh, losing luggage and uh, the hustle and bustle of a Ghanaian airport, which we or I'd never experienced before. We made our way to the orphanage, and I met Clara face-to-face. And for the next week, I, I spent, whether I wanted to or not, every moment with her. Uh, we laughed, uh, we giggled, um, we played, and it was beautiful. And then I came home, and a couple months later, uh, Monica flew over, and a few days after that, Rachel flew over to Ghana, and Rachel got to spend about a week with Clara. 
And then at the, at the end of 2011, in the beginning of 2012, Robert and Monica's uh, court date came through and their adoption was finalized and they got to fly over and bring home their kiddos. And we thought to ourselves, man, we're next, we're close. Um, and, and we weren't close. As a matter of fact, a few weeks later, we were told by the orphanage that a woman, a, a female relative of Clara, had shown up and essentially said, while I can't provide for her, I don't want her adopted. And so they took her out of the orphanage back to the village that she was from, and we waited. We prayed, and we prayed, and we got our church together, and we prayed as a church, and we reached out to family and friends, and we prayed, and we pleaded with the Lord, God, would you, would you bring her home? For a year, we've called this little girl our daughter. Uh, there's this video that Rachel has of her singing happy birthday to me. Uh, this is my daughter, God, bring her home. Uh, and he didn't. It's a long and convoluted story that has all sorts of twists and turns, uh, but the truth of the matter is Clara is 18 now. Um, she is tall. She's like six foot tall, uh, an amazingly beautiful young woman, and she still lives in Ghana. She went back to the orphanage just about a year after the adoption fell apart, and she honestly lived most of her life in that orphanage without being adopted. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. At the end of that process, when the Lord had seemingly closed the door, I found myself ill-equipped as a Christ follower to walk with him in the midst of that. Uh, for a long while, what I tried to do was grit my teeth and, 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 and fight to believe what Scripture made very clear about the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And yet every experience and truth in my life at that point in time it communicated what felt like the opposite. I was lost spiritually for a long season until I learned by God's grace to lament. Lament is probably a word that you don't use often, but it occurs within Scripture in multiple places and in multiple ways. It is a central theme within Scripture as Scripture pulls no punches discussing the brokenness of the world that we live in. The Hebrew word for lament literally means to wail, to, to cry aloud, to, to moan. But lament is, is, is more than simply sorrow or sadness. Lament is a process with a person. Here, here's my stab at a definition for lament. It is the process of walking through hurt and sorrow as a people loved by God. It is the process of walking through hurt and sorrow as a people loved by God. Mark Vrogop, a pastor who's written extensively on lament, he said this, he said, To cry is human. To lament is Christian. Psalm 77 teaches us as Christ followers this critical process, this integral aspect of our faith that we call lament. There's five movements that the psalmist takes us through that I want us to see and learn this morning, and they are these. 
first, to turn. Second, to feel. Third, to doubt. Fourth, to remember. And finally, fifth, to expect. Turn, feel, doubt, remember, and expect. The psalmist begins by helping us to learn how to turn to the Lord. He begins by declaring this, I cry aloud to God. Literally, I wail aloud to God. Aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan, and when I meditate, my spirit fails. The psalmist begins his lament by declaring a number of actions that he is taking. Each of these actions are aimed toward the Lord. He cries to God. He seeks the Lord. His hand is stretched out towards the Almighty. Even his moaning is done in the presence of and with expectation that it will be heard by God. Lament, by its very nature, is a movement. It's a movement toward the Lord. Lament is a process of experiencing sorrow and hurt, but doing so not as those that have been created and abandoned, but as those who have been created and are loved. R.C. Sproul was one time asked... uh, a question that, gosh, I, I couldn't even think of how I would answer. He was asked this question. If you had to sum up the Christian life in one phrase, what would it be? And Sproul said he, he paused. And then he said two Latin words, corum Deo. Deo, God, corum, before the face of. To sum up the Christian life is to say that we have been created, live now, and because of the grace of Jesus, will forever live before the face of God. We we tend to, to do this thing in our life. And it's one of the things that we try and tear down in our gospel communities. And and the thing is this: we we segregate our life. We have secular spaces and we have sacred spaces. We have areas and places and times where we interact with the Lord, where we speak of the Lord, where we consider the Lord, and we have other areas of our life where we don't. Worship, praise, acknowledgement of his commands and morality tend to be spaces where we in the church enter into the sacred. 
acknowledge the Lord, live before His face, and yet in the messy spaces of life, including spaces where we are sorrowful, sad, hurt, and confused, we tend to do that in private. The truth of the matter is that sorrow and suffering tends to isolate. It narrows our life. We inherently believe that no one else can truly know or understand what we are going through. And even if they could, we are fearful to express our sorrow and sadness because it leads to shame. But lament is meant to make the risky decision to turn to the Lord. And and I I say this with all sincerity. It is risky feeling. It takes courage to turn to the Lord in the midst of our our sorrow and difficult spaces. Placing our trust in Him like the psalmist does, crying aloud to Him, addressing Him, bringing it all before Him, it raises all sorts of questions. What if the Lord is silent? When Rachel and I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, I didn't hear an audible word from the Lord. We didn't even necessarily get a no. It was just nothing seemed to change. Or maybe that's not the question that pops into your mind when you think about bringing sorrow and difficulty and hurt before the Lord. Maybe you hear this. What if this sorrow is my fault and therefore he's going to allow me to simply experience it? What if he'll reject me Because I caused this. Or maybe the one we're most familiar with, what if he says no to the things that I think will help? They're not easy questions to answer. And the way that the psalmist answers them may not feel sufficient to you or may not be what you expect. And yet, what I need you to hear is that healing will not occur apart from the Lord. We were created. Humanity was utterly dependent upon the Lord. And He intends for us to live before Him with every moment and every breath and every emotion and every experience and circumstance of our life. Lament begins by turning to Him. The second step is perhaps one we're even less adept at. Feeling. Feeling deeply what is actually occurring. The psalmist goes on in verses 4 through 6 and he says this, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long gone. I say, let me remember my song in the night and let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. 
the psalmist is cripplingly troubled, hurt, wounded by what we don't know, but he is in anguish. You hold my eyelids open. It's as if the the psalmist is saying, God, all I want to do is just go to sleep and forget what's going on. And the psalmist says, Lord, you won't even let me do that. I can't. I can't even speak a word. I am so troubled. He declares that in the midst of this place, he's going to inquire of his own heart and spirit, his song and story to understand what actually is going on. Uh, Rachel and I had a, uh, a marriage counselor a few years ago that we're still really good friends with, and he used this uh, analogy one time that just felt like it landed home. He said, in every couple, there tends to be a, a, a situation like you're driving down the road and there is an accident that occurs off on the side. And with every couple, there tends to be someone that when they see that accident, they want to hit the gas pedal and get past it. And there's someone that wants to hit the brake and figure out what happened. I'm the gas pedal in Rachel and I's marriage. When difficult things occur, what I want to do is get past it. I want to get through it. I don't want to look at it. Lord knows when I look at it, what I'll see is a carnage that quite honestly, I don't want to deal with. The psalmist doesn't hit the gas pedal on his suffering. He hits the brakes. He doesn't speed past. He doesn't fly over. He digs in. Most of us, to some extent or another, and certainly most men, are gas pedals. We've learned that the best, the safest, the easiest thing to do is to move as quickly as possible past our hardship, to cover up our emotions, and to downplay difficulty. I was reading a a, a book recently by a uh, neurobiologist and a Christian psychologist. And he told the story of a man that he was counseling that was struggling to connect with his newborn child. He was a good man, loved the Lord, loved his kids, and yet was plagued with anger and frustration and stress. And he sat down with the therapist, and the therapist started asking him some simple questions about his life and his story. And at one point in time, he asked him, in your background, is there any significant trauma or hurt? And the man said, no, there's not. And so they they kept talking for a while until eventually it came up that this man had lost his younger brother when he was eight and the younger brother was two. And the young brother had died after being struck by a car and the eight-year-old little boy that was now sitting in the therapist's office had witnessed it. And this 
The psychologist said to the man, why did you not bring that up when I asked if there was trauma or hardship in your past? And the man looked at him and said, because I've moved on. I don't consider it hardship or trauma anymore. There's no sense in me going back and reliving that. It may feel like an extreme example to you, but what you don't understand that the Psalms make so clear is that our lives are littered with the unprocessed impact of past hurt, sin, sorrow, and difficulty. The things you are doing today, the way that your brain is wired, the fights that I have with my wife are oftentimes not even primarily related to the issues at current hand, but are related to the hurt and sorrow and suffering and difficulty of my past that I have hit the gas pedal and gone past and refused to come before the Lord and wade into. There was uh, this philosophical uh, a school of thought that was birthed out of Greece and, and became pretty popular even within the Roman Empire called Stoicism. It's actually becoming resurgent today as a philosophy. At the core of this philosophy, it is that we can only control one thing, the things within us. And so to be as safe and secure and happy as we possibly can, what we need to do is we need to not be contingent on anything outside of us. Because anything outside of us is unsafe. We can't control it. We can't ensure that it goes the way that we want. And so if we can just steal ourselves to the world around us, if we can just not need the people and the things around us, then we can be okay. Stoicism has crept its way into Christianity for a number of years. And it is utterly opposed to the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that we feel. The Lord created us with feelings. Feelings is how we interact with the Lord. The Lord feels. There's this passage in Hosea where he's talking about the adulterous nature of his people. And the Lord leans in and he says, how can I give you up? The Lord's heart is breaking in front of them. And there's a piece of us that look at that and go, whoa, 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 that's not God. God's emotions can't be affected by us. And yet that's not what the Lord says. C.S. Lewis, a man who has written many things about what it looks like to live with the Lord and to see the beauty and grandeur of him was also struck in his life by great sadness when he lost his wife. He one time wrote this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, 
safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken. No, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. When you feel the absence of the Father rather than His presence, when you feel sorrow and sadness rather than joy that you were created for, when life feels like a burden rather than a gift, don't you think your Father wants to hear that from you? One of my favorite things of being a dad is getting to be the person that when my kids have nightmares, they come and they crawl into bed next to me and I get to be the one that comforts them. How much better is our Father in heaven? How much more does He want us to draw close to Him? Feeling deeply prepares our hearts to be fully known. Because whether you want to acknowledge your feelings or not, they exist. And so to be fully known means to feel deeply in the presence of God and then by His grace to be fully healed. Lament turns, it feels, and then it doubts. The psalmist goes on in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Expressing our doubts, complaining to the Lord feels sacrilegious. After the adoption with Clara fell apart, we were into the adoption process for thousands of dollars. More money than we had, quite honestly. We had been given amazing gifts by other people and the church had helped us to raise money and all of this was sunk cost at this point in time. And so Rachel and I began to have the discussion about whether or not the Lord would have us to still use that money and to adopt a different child. Robert came to me one day and, and he asked that very question to me and, and said, are, are you guys going to adopt again? And I will never forget my response to him. It, it brings shame, even as I think of it. I told him uh, that we weren't sure. And more specifically, that I wasn't sure because... I couldn't watch my wife go through what we had just gone through again. And I remember telling Robert that if the Lord led us through what we had just walked through again, it would feel like what I would need to do was fight the Lord for hurting my wife. So confused and angry and scared, quite honestly, was I. I didn't know what to do with the Lord at that point in time. 
But saying it out loud to Robert was one of the most freeing things that could have occurred. I didn't know that I was fearful like that. I didn't know that the the level of confusion in my own faith had grown to this place until I expressed my doubts out loud. And it was as if from that moment on, the Lord, rather than pulling away as I expressed my doubts, leaned in and said, now that you've said it, can we talk about it? Who hasn't had the thoughts that the psalmist expresses here? Will the Lord spurn forever? Is God mad at me? Will he never again be favorable? Will God give me good things or will he just tell me no? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Have I reached the limits of his love? Are his promises at an end for all time? Other people have constantly failed to deliver on their promises. Isn't God going to be just like that? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Is there a limit to the grace that God will pour out on me? I mean, I didn't earn it to begin with. I have no claim for Him to continue to give it to me. Very few Christians say these things out loud. But you feel them, and they swim around in your head. And if I'd never known you, I'd still know it to be true. And the reason I'd know it is because it's all throughout Scripture. The story of Scripture is the incredibly gracious nature and character of God continuing to pursue a people who are constantly doubting His goodness, grace, mercy, faithfulness, holiness, righteousness, presence. The first sin wasn't about a tempting-looking piece of fruit. The serpent's big play was, the Lord is holding out on you. And Adam and Eve doubted. Doubt is pervasive on this side of eternity. But doubts play a critical part in our walk with the Lord, and how we handle them will either deepen our trust in Him, or it'll eat away at it. If we bring our doubts to the Lord, if we express them to Him, offer them before Him, and in the midst of those doubts, the God of the universe does not cast us off, but instead brings us close How much more of a sense of secure attachment will we have to the Lord in the midst of that? If you can stand before the God of the universe who holds the stars in the heavens and honestly say to him, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand it. God, I'm so fearful. 
that you're not going to show up when I need you. God, this thing looked good, and you said no. God, I asked you to heal him, and he died. Father, I've been looking for the spouse that I desire for a long time. And I haven't found him. God, we want a child so bad. Father, this anxiety and depression is crippling. Take it. Big enough for your doubts. Big enough for your doubts. And here's the deal. You'll never know that until you bring them to him. Refusing to be honest about your doubts and complaints and your fears and your confusions does not strengthen your faith. It weakens your faith. It does not increase your view of God. It diminishes it. Because if you will not share your doubts and confusion with the Lord, then the Lord's size, presence, bigness, power, faithfulness will always be capped by your doubts. Until you bring them to him and you allow him to show you how much better he is, how much bigger he is, how much more long-suffering and gracious and kind he is. There's this great song uh, by a band called House Fires, and and this line has become something of a, a mantra in our house. The line goes like this, All my fears and doubts, they can all come too, because they can't stay long when I'm here with you. All my fears and doubts, they can come into your presence, God. Because in the light of your glory and grace, there they will be done away with. Lament turns, it feels, it doubts, and then it remembers, remembers his faithfulness. In undergrad, I took a a class called Logic. And and in this class, it was essentially a a class to teach you how to argue something I was I mean, I think I got like 104% in that class. And my wife and children would probably agree with that. But in, in the class, we, we learned a number of heuristics. Now, heuristics are essentially shortcuts that our brain uses in order to, to process the information around us. The problem is the heuristics, the shortcuts that we use, don't always accurately reflect what's going on. One of the most common heuristics that we use is something we call recency bias. What it means is that our life is, 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 is filled with information, facts, evidence that we can at any given time use to figure out what is going on and what will occur. But because there's so much information available to us, we tend to do the easiest thing, which is use that which is closest to us, right? It, it plays out like uh, something like this. Um, you're, you, you get up in the morning and you're running late to work. Um, and only some of you know this because most of you guys work in your pajamas at home at this point in time in the world, which is great. But you get up, 
theoretically. You get in the car, you're running late, and you're like, oh man, I, I have got to get there, and I need every light to be green. And you, you hit the first stoplight, and guess what? It's red. And then you hit the next stoplight, and guess what? It's red. And you know what you say to yourself? I always hit the red lights. Do you? Or is it just in this moment you are very consciously aware that you need the light to be green and it's red? See, we take God's faithfulness, his presence, his goodness for granted until we can't clearly see it. And then in the moment where we can't clearly see it, we assume based on this recency bias that we give ourselves over to, that this is how the Lord always is. The psalmist knows that he's prone to go there. He is in the midst of difficulty, sorrow, sadness, whatever it is. He feels it deeply, and he can feel the nature of his soul being prone to want to say, God, you're always like this. Right? This is the conversation I have with my kids all the time, which is, my kids only use extreme language. All of my friends are doing it, Dad. All of them? Really? You always do this, Dad. Do I? And you know what I do in that moment? I choose one obscure example where I didn't do this thing just to strike down their argument. The Lord is redeeming that part of my parenting, and uh, by His grace, I'll be better. Right? We do this all the time. And we do it with the Lord. The psalmist knows that he's prone to do this. And so what does he do? He recites to himself. He literally sings a song of the faithfulness of God that he himself has witnessed and his people have witnessed. I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. The years to God's power the years of his faithfulness, the years of his goodness. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Because you are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the people's you, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The Lord is faithful. Period. The Lord is good. Period. The Lord is kind. Period. But we don't always see it. And so there is an invitation, even as we are honest with the Lord about our doubts, to remind ourselves again and again and again that the overwhelming evidence is not of the absence of the Lord, but of His presence. I said this last week when I was preaching, you will do one of two things. You will either look around you at your circumstances that you exist in today and by those trying to determine if the Lord is good. 
or you will so immerse yourself in the truth of the moment by moment, year after year, faithfulness and goodness of the Lord, that when your circumstances occur that are difficult or confusing, you will interpret your circumstances based on who the Lord is. This is why you need gospel community. Because you're a gospel amnesiac. You forget it again and again and again and again. And you need people around you. You need your own written words. You need the songs of the body of Christ so surrounding you that in the moment when things go sideways, you would be saying to yourself, God, what are you doing? Because I know that you are good. I've seen it. I've experienced it. We remember our God's faithfulness, and finally, we expect. We expect redemption. The psalmist ends like this, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled and the clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. My favorite story in all of Scripture is the story of Jesus in the garden. The name of the garden, Gethsemane, literally means olive press. It's why I have olive branches and leaves tattooed on my arm. And the reason I love this story so much is that out of this night, this night in the garden, this night of anguish, where Jesus proclaimed with his words that he was sorrowful to the point of death, where he was so overwhelmed that he was sweating drops of blood, where he himself admitted that he was fearful, out of this night came the salvation of the entire world. And out of this night also came the exaltation of Jesus by the Father. And this night was not just part of the story that Jesus needed to get to in order to get to the right hand of the Father. It wasn't just a part of the story that he needed to get past in order to save humanity. It was a part of the story that was integral. The Lord was using this part of the story to craft together our salvation. The answer to our doubts and fears, the answer to our sorrows, is not to simply ask the Lord that one day he would stop it. Or, or one day he would make the hard go away or, or somehow make things okay or, or open a window if he's going to shut a door. The answer to our doubts and fears and sorrows to expect the Lord to use them 
for good and glorious things. The psalmist ends his song of lament recalling the parting of the Red Sea. The sea for Israel was always a symbol of chaos and evil, of suffering and death. And so here Israel finds themselves backed up against the sea with Pharaoh and his army bearing down on them. And literally, for them, the only way out and free of Pharaoh was to go through the sea. Was to go through death. And what does the psalmist say? Indeed, the Lord's way was through the sea. It was through the very symbol of death. But the Lord would take that symbol of death and make it a path of redemption. He would use it as a path towards freedom and life and hope. The answer to our doubts and fears is not to just expect that they'll one day end, but to expect that the Lord is using them for good. Read these words on the screen here from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth from chapter 4. Paul says, beginning in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He goes on in verse 16 and says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, hear this, your doubts, your fears, your suffering, your sorrow, your anguish, even your unanswered prayers is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lament is not a time for us to lower our expectations in God. It's a time to raise them. He promised That for those of us that love him and are called according to his purposes, he would work all things together for our good. All things, which include death, which include sickness, which include relational strife, which include disappointment, which include anxiety and depression and insecurity, isolation and loneliness, all things together for our good, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus and being conformed into his image, being led into eternity 
and the presence of our God forever and ever. Amen. Listen, church. Our story with Clara didn't end cleanly. We never got a good answer. Why? Sometimes we do in life, but oftentimes we don't. It didn't get tied up with a clean and neat bow at the end of it where we could say, God, I see why you did that. But I will tell you why. The Lord drew near to us. He brought us near. He showed us his goodness and grace, and he has been from that day forward incredibly kind. Lament is hard, and it is also critical. I'm so sorry for the sorrow and difficulty that you faced. I'm sorry for the hardship you're walking through right now, and I'm sorry that suffering is going to continue to be a part of our lives. But your God is not one who withdraws from your sorrow. He comes closer. In fact, He enters into your suffering. And He takes it upon His shoulders. So let me invite you once more to turn to Him. To feel deeply what is going on. To be honest about doubts and complaints and fears. And then allow Him to remind you of His goodness and to fix your eyes on the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us. Let's pray.